Welcome to the first episode of Defence Talks, Securing UK Advantage, a new podcast brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with Trade Association, ADS Group, and sponsored by industry powerhouse BAE Systems. Every two weeks, this podcast will discuss key questions that shape defence, technological and national security agendas in the UK, and will explore the main themes in British defence in the context of intensifying geopolitical competition. I'm Victoria Starik Samoli, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, and I could not be more excited to be joined for this first episode by the world-class journalist, defence editor for The Economist, Shashank Joshi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely honoured to be on. And we both could not be more delighted to be joined by Dr. Rob Johnson to discuss the defense's response to a more contested and volatile world, i.e. the Defense Command paper refresh today for this very first episode. Dr. Rob Johnson, welcome. Thank you very much indeed. It's uh, great to be here. So Dr. Rob Johnson is the Director of the Secretaries of State Office of Net Assessment and Challenge at the Ministry of Defence, and he was previously the Director of the Oxford Changing Character War Centre and a Senior Research Fellow at Pembroke College, Oxford. But most importantly, keeping in mind the focus of today's episode, Dr. Rob Johnson was the lead architect of the Defence Command Paper Refresh published earlier this year in July. So Rob, perhaps let's begin with a very simple question. How would you describe what is the Defence Command Paper? Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a good place to start. I mean, the um, Command Papers are, in many ways, um, uh, an item, a document presented, of course, to our Parliament. Um, but it's supposed to capture the defence contribution to the national strategy, which we call the Integrated Review these days. They formerly were called, you know, a sort of, uh, security defence strategies of some description. Um, the defence contribution uh, should set out uh, really what is the specific role that defence must play in the defence of the nation. So where there might be uh, sort of four pillars uh, of the integrated review, refresh for example, then the defence command paper puts flesh on the bones of, of those particular statements and says what is it that defence can do and must do uh, in order to fulfil that government policy. But it gets presented to Parliament by the Secretary of State so the nation knows exactly what it is we're, we're trying to achieve. When it comes to the refreshes, we had mm. many of those over the past couple of months, I would even say, right? Mm. Um, we had the refresh of the integrated review, then followed by the refresh of the Defence Command paper. Could you please explain a bit more? What, what are the most important elements of both refreshes that we need to focus on and think about? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So a lot of people were surprised that there was um, a refresh of anything at all. For obvious reasons, the world situation had changed very, very dramatically. And if we think back to those months before uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, uh, the second phase of that invasion, of course, they first invaded in 2014, but that main phase of February 2022, um, in the build-up to it, the months before, um, there were those of us who were very, very concerned indeed that um, all the things that we had predicted uh, about uh, in the integrated review in 2021, that Russia was the uh, pacing threat, it was acting more aggressively. When that invasion happened uh, in February 22, um, it was pretty clear that we needed to just update and upgrade uh, what we said and what we thought was important. Uh, some people have argued that it was also necessary because we had failed to deter Russia from aggressive action. But I think we need to clarify just one thing here, which is very important, that Russia was deterred from attacking the United Kingdom and NATO, our allies in the North Atlantic, 
um, that was achieved. Um, now, did we deter and stop Russia from invading, uh, invading Ukraine? No, we didn't. As a result, what we've been doing uh, is fulfilling, I think, our international obligations to a partner nation. We were a signatory to a partnership with Ukraine uh, to make sure that it was properly enabled to defend itself. And, and we've been doing that. But I think the, um, the really crucial thing is that we also decided to look inside uh, very honestly, uh, very robustly at UK defence and say, OK, uh, a major war has broken out on the periphery of Europe. Um, how good are we at the moment? Well, let's be really clear and honest with ourselves about where the shortcomings are. And let's start putting those right right away because we may not have a great deal of time before something really serious uh, happens or we're called upon to do even more than we're currently doing. And as a result, um, the key components of the Defence Command paper are all really concerned with um, the areas of people. So do we make the right people offer? Um, they're concerned with the modernisation of the conventional armed force and of our nuclear deterrent force. So are they as fit uh, as they need to be? Um, and then the third area, which is very important, is uh, industry and infrastructure. So have we got the right relationship with industry for the right, the most efficient procurement and the right kind of productivity? And have we got the right infrastructure to deliver the sort of effects we want it to achieve? And those three really big areas, um, I think, are, are the most important. But as a result, in terms of spending, the key elements are twofold. One is our stocks of our munitions. We, we realised that over the last sort of 30 years, the demand on stocks was quite low. Um, but as we've all seen uh, unfolding in Ukraine, the demands for stocks are enormous. So we've had to put a lot of money into that, both last autumn and indeed uh, this year. And uh, the bulk of the money, the new money that government has given defence, um, has been ring-fenced around modernising our nuclear deterrent. But we can go into the detail of those if you wish to look at those. Absolutely. Shashank, 97 pages. We are trying to cover this in 30, 35 minutes today. It's quite a challenge, no? It's a huge challenge. In addition to those three things that, that Rob picked out, people, modernisation of conventional and nuclear and an industry, all of which I think are connected to the work that I've done the last 18 months on Ukraine, you can see how each of those three things is, is vividly demonstrated in Ukraine by, by the war unfolding there. There's another thing that I think was very interesting, which is the campaigning focus, mm. which I think maybe bears a bit of discussion, Rob, because it's one of those words that mm. it's quite elusive. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you're not in defense, if you're not in security, it's easy to sort of completely miss what it means. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm interested in how important that was for you. You know, just to challenge you a little bit here. Mm -hmm. Can you persuade us it's not a buzzword? Can you persuade us it's an actual thing that defense is doing that it wasn't doing before the DCPs and is doing now and makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, persuade us of that. Ah, okay. Well, how can I persuade? Um, this word buzzword is is absolutely um, the case. Uh, it feels that sometimes we're using words because they sound right, but what's the substance? What's the what's the beef uh, uh, behind it? As Americans would say. Um, well, some of them I think are really really crucial um, and. They are more than simply the term itself. So let's just take the word integrated, for example, as a so-called buzzword. And I'll link that to this idea of campaigning. So we decided uh, some time ago that um, national strategies will be called integrated review because they're more than defence and indeed more than security and defence. This is about um, how you bring together the effects of 
uh, your economic growth and your economic influence around the world. Uh, this is how you bring that alongside the values and standards by which you wish the country to be known by and live by. How you bring that into the narratives that you push out into the world about how we are a responsible country. We have a humanitarian aid budget, which is the envy of most European countries. Um, in other words, you've got to bring all these things together. Now, where I do get slightly uncomfortable is where I hear phrases like, we're going to be more agile, more lethal, uh, more forward postured. It's always a bit more. And, and I'm a bit worried that we don't always look or are comfortable with saying what we can do a little less of. Yeah. And we yeah. have to be a bit more honest about what we're prioritising, what we can't do anymore. And that brings me to this point then about the campaigning thing, because uh, the UK, uh, on its own, as a sovereign defence power, it's got an independent nuclear deterrent, it's very, very powerful indeed. It's got very good armed forces, which are, you know, again, the envy of many of our European colleagues. But on their own, they would not be big enough to deter China, for example, or on its own, probably Russia. Um, and therefore, uh, we are allied by design. We're constantly in dialogue with our allies and partners. So that leads us to this question, then finally gets the answer about campaigning. What is it? Um, it is a military expression about a sustained line of effort mm. or lines of effort. So you take a theme uh, and you simply say, we're going to put this on a sort of almost semi-permanent basis. We will not just do a one-off, solve this problem, then walk away. Uh, we're going to put this on a basis where we can sustain over the long term this activity by properly resourcing it, by properly procuring for it, by bringing in industry and saying this is a long, long term programme. And the classic example of campaigning would be, for example, the AUKUS deal with Australia and the United States. To build a nuclear propelled submarine, let's be absolutely clear, this is not nuclear weapon firing submarines, mm. but to, to build them to bring in the expertise required for that construction, to, to crew them with the right qualified people, is a multi-decade project. You can't do it in five minutes. Now, that you need a campaign, is, I guess is how we call it. It's not a policy. Policies come and go with governments. This is a campaign. This is something that's going to last through whatever complexion of government we have. This is going to be there because this is part of the one of the, the great sort of pillars, if you like, of UK defence. And, um, I mean, to give you a little bit of insight, I think Ukraine is the next long-term campaigning area because it's not just about holding off the Russians and helping Ukraine defend itself. There's going to be a much, much deeper relationship, security relationship with Ukraine, which will last for decades, possibly 100 years. It's that level of magnitude that we're talking about. In the same way that we've had a relationship with France since the Second World War, or even more uh, significantly with the United States. Uh, for most of the 20th century. These are long-term, campaigned, sustainable relationships. Rob, um, another buzzword that actually I came across, I think, around 23 times in this document is the strategic advantage. Yes. I'm sure that our listeners are very keen to understand what does it really mean in practice. So please, enlighten us. Yeah, great. I'm really glad you asked about this because this is my day job, um, is locating, identifying UK's strategic advantage. There's sort of three components. Things go very one threes. Um, three components, really. One is resource. So you may have an advantage because you have more resources than your opponent. Or you have collaborated with your allies and partners to create that massive resource. So give you one example of that. NATO um, currently has 3.1 million personnel. If it was asked to mobilise, it could produce 
within a couple of months, five million personnel. That's what I mean by resource. So that's a strategic advantage right there. Mm. Number two uh, would be position. So the UK is an island nation. Um, and our island status has been a fantastic uh, resource for defence. But if you look at position, today we wouldn't say it's a necessarily geographical thing, although it does help. Um, if you look, for example, where UK bases are around the world, all these make up part of our global position. Even if you wanted to be a, a sort of narrow bunch of Englanders living in some sort of small part of the southeast of England, we can't. We are a global power. We have global responsibilities. We're a P5 nation of the UN Security Council. There is no way we can avoid our global responsibilities. So our position, our global position, and our great plethora of relationships and alliances and partnerships give us advantage by position. Um, so resource and position. And the final one is leverage. This is really all about your willingness to use the resources of power that you have for good. Um, we used to talk about uh, UK defence being a force for good. Um, I think they still are. Uh, I know the Minister Armed Forces feel strongly that we should still have that in our lexicon. If we did not uh, exercise leverage over Russia um, in its illegal invasion of Ukraine, if we just walked away and said, it's nothing to do with us, it's a long way away, the consequence of that is a world where those with military might will simply crush underfoot um, nations that we care about and for which, actually, our national resources are derived. I would just come back, Rob, to something you said earlier on uh, strategies, also knowing what you do less of as well as more of. There's an, a great paper written by Frank Hoffman, the, 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 the writer and, and defense scholar in America, who said, talked about strategy as an appetite suppressant, mm. which I thought was nice. You know, it's, it's about knowing when to do less of something mm. as well as knowing what to do more of. So mm. with that point about strategic advantage in mind, and again, in the spirit of challenging you, since you're here, since yeah. you're here to be challenged, is what are we doing less of? Are you mm. convinced we're doing sufficiently less of enough stuff to resource and support all the extra stuff that we are doing mm. as part of these ambitions? Um, and and of course, GCAP in AUKUS will, by necessity and, and perhaps properly, pull us more into the Indo-Pacific mm. as, as our focus. What are we doing less of to sort of make room for the other stuff? That's a great question, and um, you know it. It's, it's a constant political debate, uh, if you don't mind me saying. I mean, you know, I'm, it's, I provide decision support. I, I, unfortunately, I don't make the decisions. If I did, uh, be quite some quite radical solutions would be coming forward, I guess. But um, <laughs> so let me follow this. So um, in the 1980s, when we faced uh, the Soviet Union, um, you know, Russia today, if you want, um, we had a British army on the Rhine, uh, which was pretty vast. Um, and we had an air force to provide air cover for that land force. And we had to commit the majority of the Royal Navy to cover the North Sea and North Atlantic. We don't do that today. We do not have a British army on the Rhine. Why? Because we've got great allies in Poland, for example, Romania, two countries which, just in mentioning, have both stood up um, new headquarters, have increased defence budgets, um, increased the size of their land forces. You've got Finland that's joined. They just brought another 280,000 troops uh, and military personnel to NATO. Sweden is on the cusp of being formally admitted, bringing more thousands of personnel, turning the Baltic Sea into a NATO lake, if you like, isolating Kaliningrad and therefore containing Kaliningrad. So um, we don't need to do as much in the land environment, for example, a British army in the Rhine, 
simply because we have got all these brilliant allies and partners. Although, Rob, sorry to, if I can interject, as mm. under the new NATO defence plans, a significant chunk of British land combat power and heavy combat power is still going to be committed yeah. to the defence of the Baltic states yes. under those plans. So That's right. relative to the size we are today, mm-hmm. although we haven't got a big standing static force on the Rhine, we're still pretty committed to the Baltics and to land power in Europe through our army, aren't we? Yes, we are. And, and we should be uh, in the sense that, um, you know, where does the primary threat come from in the land environment? Well, it comes from the east. And uh, in order to reassure your allies, you need to make commitment. Um, and uh, I think there's somebody famous said, you know, unless you're prepared to put you know, yourself forward and sacrifice yourself, you're not really committed. So this is actually the UK saying we are committing ourselves to a collective form of defence. We've got to find what are we doing less of. One of them would say the scale of the land force that we've got is not committed to central Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, we have retained a core headquarters, the ARC, as is an Allied Rapid Reaction Corps um, at Cheltenham. And in that headquarters, we have the ability to bring in um, an armoured division immediately, um, air assault brigade, Royal Marine um, Future Force commandos. We've got the Royal Navy, which is uh, almost exclusively committed to um, the Euro-Atlantic area defence. We've got a constantly patrolling uh, submarine force. Uh, so we've got we've got a quite a big commitment. Now, I'm not really answering your question there about specifically what to reduce. So again, let me give you another example. So in space, uh, for example, we know this is a, you know, it's a future theatre of war potentially. And we have to make sure that we have sufficient surveillance and robustness in communications that we can protect the UK against any threat from space. I mean, if it went horribly wrong, um, the UK would last about three days and everything would stop. Now, do we spend billions and billions of pounds in space? No, we don't. We align very closely to the United States, which has got a really, really good setup. And we make our contribution uh, with various different satellites, which we won't name here for classification reasons, but we've got a number of different uh, assets. And that is our contribution. So it's, I'd love it if we spent billions of pounds. We don't have billions of pounds of taxpayers' money to spend on it. So let's do the next best thing. And let's just prioritise by just providing that uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance um, capability. But the, I mean, there are others. The other thing, I've, the final thing I'd say about what you reduce, we have the minimum necessary nuclear deterrent. We don't do testing, uh, but we do maintain a very, very high quality uh, nuclear fleet. And that's just all about being responsible, I think. When it comes to prioritization, also another aspect that we might want to touch on are the regions, the Euro-Atlantic and also the Indo-Pacific. My understanding from reading this document is that, of course, well, naturally, we talk a lot about the permanent presence in the Euro-Atlantic. And I think the term that is used for the Indo-Pacific is pulsed presence. Mm -hmm. How would you describe... um, the need to see both spaces as an integrated one space, i.e. Atlantic Pacific, for example. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right to, to suggest that uh, we should see them as these linked strategic theatres. Um, look, we're in a globalised, connected world these days. Um, we've seen Russia shutting down oil and gas supplies, which affects the wholesale price um, of uh, oil and gas uh, in Europe. Because the wholesale price goes up, our prices go up. So... The world is just so interconnected. Um, and if China decided to um, you know, try to make uh, difficulties for the UK by shutting off certain consumer goods, that would affect people at home um, who want to go shopping for um, school uniforms for their children, for example. We are all connected. Therefore, 
it's in all our interests as a country um, to be interested in what's going around the world um, and to uh, perhaps uh, try to appreciate why it is, for example, that we have a presence in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, there was some um, talk uh, when the Integrated Review 2021 came out that, you know, what is this tilt that you talk about? Now, the tilt primarily looked at as an economic function, but because we, at the time, produced the carrier strike group, this is the aircraft carrier and all its sort of ships that go around it, and by the way, the Europeans sort of came with us to say, we would like to be part of this uh, flotilla, making this demonstration of Britain's commitment to this part of the world. Because it went operational the same year that we announced the tilt, everyone assumed that tilt somehow meant uh, a pivot to Asia, a military thing. Um, well, it wasn't that entirely. We had always been there. Um, but this pulsed presence idea has to be seen as surges in between a more permanent fixture. So we've got ocean patrol vessels, two of those permanently stationed uh, in the East Asian region. Um, we've got now a permanent relationship um, that's growing from an aviation and avionics point of view with Japan. So um, the pulses will be uh, reassurance to, to friends, um, but also reminders to those who would do us harm and threaten us that actually we're still here and we are not on our own. We're coming as a, say, maybe a, a joint NATO-like flotilla. You know, we'll have European nations in it, we'll have Americans in it. Um, it'll be saying, you're not taking on the United Kingdom when we turn up to the South China Sea. Uh, you, if you did try to do us harm, you're taking on all of us. We are all trying to preserve a global commons, um, some established rules of commerce, uh, and all that. There's, there's a couple of other things I'd say on the Indo-Pacific point, Victoria, which is on this idea of pulsing and on the idea of defining it purely in military terms. It strikes me looking at Ukraine that two of the most important interventions in this war of the last uh, six, seven months have been from Indo-Pacific powers. One of them, South Korea's yes. decision to provide a huge tranche of shells that in some respects underwrote Ukraine's offensive, a huge volume of shells that drew on their incredible reserves of defense industry that, you know, we sometimes forget that they have because because we, you know, we, we, we don't always look at the uh, in defense industrial strengths of these non-traditional powers. Uh, Ukraine could not have gone on the offensive for this long without it. And more recently, uh, Rob, as you, you'll know very well, all too well, is North Korea's decision to provide defense assistance to the Russians. Mm -hmm. um, and what's, what's beginning to look like quite a large transfusion of arms, including shells, uh, in recent months, perhaps even opening up new offensive possibilities for the Russians, even if only in a limited way. And that's also astonishing. You know, who in February 2022 mm. would have thought it's North Korea that will yeah. be providing a key pulsed bit of support to the Russians yeah. at this stage? And, you know, it, we, we, we don't know precisely how diplomatic relationships affect those decisions. But if you don't have the US able to broker that transfer from South Korea, if you don't have that Russian, Russia, North Korea axis that sort of suddenly changes, you the battlefield looks very different. And I, and I think we have to remember that as well. Yeah, we do. And what's really interesting, of course, about the South Korea contribution is that South Korean shells uh, and missiles work uh, and North Korean ones are notoriously unreliable to the point where the Russians are complaining bitterly about the poor quality of, of what they allegedly will get because, of course, they're not getting it yet. Um, that's also part of the problem. It, it takes a long time to transfer all this equipment. Will it do Russia any good? No, it won't. Uh, and the deterioration of their uh, armed forces is now so far gone that it's difficult to see how they can do anything except more of this grinding, relentless sort of trench warfare. 
with artillery with its barrels increasingly worn out. Um, they don't store their ammunition probably, so there'll be more breach explosions. Um, they don't go through proper procedures of quality assurance, so they'll have even more disasters there. Uh, the Ukrainians are reaching further and further into depth against depots. Um, they're using all sorts of new technology to geolocate uh, these particular um, uh, munitions uh, sites. So um, overall, I agree with you uh, that the contributions of the East Asian nations has been uh, perhaps something we wouldn't have foreseen, although in a connected world perhaps we should have done, but I, will it make any difference to the outcome? I suspect it won't. We touched on the technology and mm. I guess another another aspect that we might want to discuss is mass versus technologies. There's clear importance of tech solutions, particularly drones and other technologies that actually have been used in the conflict in Ukraine and we've seen how important they have been. How does the key plan to blend this high-tech, exclusive technology that we always think about when we talk about the, the, the technologies required for future warfare with low-tech, cheaper mm. um, technologies that actually also are quite useful? Yeah, that's no, a great, great question, actually. One of the things that uh, characterises um, Western warfare over the last sort of 30 years has been um, precision. Um, you know, we've been... It's really dominated how the West has gone about conducting military operations, its precision. Um, what it means is that you don't need these vast stockpiles of ammunition in the way that Russia has been doing. Now that's because it's so wasteful. They go for these area mm. fires. You see these pictures of Ukraine with fields full of craters. Well, none of those have hit the target. Mm. That's not how we do business. It's much easier to have a smaller and neater logistics chain, much less vulnerable, if you need fewer munitions. And if you need a few munitions, if you've got greater precision. So um, there is a big debate going at the moment, as you know. Um, one of the options is small, cheap and many, or you can have exquisite and boutique and precise. Actually, that's a complete false dichotomy. Um, what we've got is both. You need small, yes, um, so they're stealthier. Um, cheap, yes, because this is taxpayers' money we're looking after here. Um, and many, because uh, you need to be able to flood um, your opponent's uh, abilities to deal with you. And you're probably going to lose, lose a few. But what characterises the way the UK and the US and some of our NATO allies work is that we're also very precise. So we can bring in uh, you know, some effect very, very neatly uh, without these great logistical chains and with great massive stockpiles. You just need a bit more than, than we kind of got right now. One of the phrases that goes around is this phrase lethal as well, because what we're demonstrating to our opponents is that they should be really, really anxious about taking us on because we have connected together our communications infrastructure with our surveillance infrastructure, with our ability to deliver munitions if necessary, fire effects if you want. And it's the speed of which we can do that and the precise nature of which we can do it which is, um, should be, in my view, utterly terrifying. This digital infrastructure, which we talk about in the Defence Command paper, is absolutely central to what we're, we do, how we fight, if you like, if we're forced to fight. We don't want to. You know, we're trying to deter opponents. We're trying not to uh, waste taxpayers' money. We're trying to be a responsible power and maintain deterrence and a global order. But if we're forced into it, um, then we're going to make sure we win uh, by having all these new technologies linked together. Now, one of the things that is causing... Um, I think the biggest shift of all is this idea of autonomy and it scares a lot of people because autonomy sounds a bit like killer robots you know my god are the machines taking over um, I, I can reassure you that all the mechanisms are there that a human is always the decision maker even if there are autonomous vehicles or autonomous systems 
they have autonomy to move around. They don't have autonomy to release lethal ordnance. That has to be a human responsibility because it has so much moral uh, uh, you know, um, importance. Uh, and actually, one of the great hallmarks of the British Armed Forces is this professionalism and how seriously they take that idea. Rob, on your point about precision and our advantage in precision mm. and needing more than we have now, but not as much as the other side, mm. I, I don't disagree, but I'm, I, I'm also reminded of that. There's that Keynes quote, isn't there, where he says, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a line in the uh, army, the new British army's land operating concept, mm. which I thought was, was very interesting... Uh, or maybe maybe it was the British Army Review I, I read it, but, it, but either way, it said, there's a danger that the enemy will be able to generate more combat echelons than we have sensors or high-end long-range weaponry to service. And I think that's really interesting because, yes. you know, and you see this with Crimea. The Ukraine's doing fast, a fantastic job in isolating Crimea, smashing up the Black Sea Fleet, destroying its bases. But they can't keep that initiative indefinitely. You know, the French can't provide more scalp. Uh, our storm shadow numbers are limited. They're finite. We need them as well. Attackums will bridge the gap from the Americans, but those will also be limited, and the Americans may be providing cluster variants rather than unitary warheads and all these other things. And and what we've realized is you can do wonderful things with precision munitions, but they're expensive, they're few in number, and the number of targets you will face, uh, certainly in a, in a Pacific campaign against the Chinese with huge numbers of, of land-based launchers, air defense systems, um, c command posts, all these things. These are missile soaks. These are missile sponges. And I, I doubt right now whether our defense industry could mm. cope with that kind of industrial-level campaign. Precision will help us wage it more efficiently. It will not solve the problem entirely. Mm. And then one final thing to note is just with, with the Hamas attack on Israel fresh in our minds, that horrific mm. massacre of October 7th, um, what I saw at the operational level was also a pretty interesting attempt to defeat those set networked sensors and shooters that you described, mm -hmm. right? We saw Hamas uh, blind Israeli sensors, which were uh, not manned terribly well. We saw them use sniper mm -hmm. rifles, drones to take out cameras, vibration sensors, overrun bases to prevent their Israeli command and control from operating. We even saw rudimentary electronic warfare, from what I can see, uh, jamming Israeli communications. Mm -hmm. So um, technology has vulnerabilities, and I'm, I'm really interested by how our armed forces, how the British, but also allied ones, deal with that down the line as they try to strike that balance? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I, and I, actually, I'm really pleased... That was a rant that. rather than a question, no, Rob, so thank you for <laughs> treating it as such. Well, it's, it's a question to me, or it's a, it's a challenge to me, which is absolutely right and proper. So um, let me, first thing I want to say is just to reiterate this point, that um, let's hope we never have that kind of conflict with China, right? Um, the purpose is to deter uh, with, with our allies. And if you put together... All the munitions of South Korea, Japan, United States, the UK, France, all, all countries which, and Australia, all countries which have a national interest in the East Asian theatre, if you put all those munitions together, that's a lot more than what the UK can produce in the same. Right? So I agree with you. you know, I'd, I'd agree to a degree, but then I'd sort of yeah. make so a difference. So mass by alliances. Mass by alliances. That's all the ally does by design sort of uh, concept. I think the other thing is that... Um, uh, if we, you're right about the technological vulnerability. So we know that all tech has some sort of vulnerability. It doesn't matter if it's a humble tank, um, they break down, uh, bridges collapse, you know, weapons get jammed. Um, there's always something that goes wrong. I mean, if you're Chinese and you have a surveillance balloon and get shot down by a missile, you know, there's always something that goes wrong. Um, but the training 
um, is one of the ways you get around the technological faults. I think the other thing is that, um, look, if you ask me personally, do I think UK has got enough mass to deal with all sorts of threats? From a personal perspective, I wish we had more. I wish we had a lot more. I would like to see four land divisions for the uh, British Army. I would like to see the Royal Navy surge from 19 combat vessels to 39 combat vessels. I'd like to see the RAF have, they've got two new squadrons coming. I'd like to see them have six new squadrons. Um, and I'd like to beef up um, the UK's uh, nuclear capability with non-strategic nuclear capability. Now, the reason I don't demand that of, of people at work is because um, I know that we have a national responsibility. The department, you know, the Ministry of Defence has a responsibility to use taxpayers' money wisely. Mm. The, the public have been kind enough to give us, gifted to us, fifty billion pounds at a time when they're all facing their own domestic hardship, when they're worried about their kids' education at school. We've got some schools that you know need attention in terms of structure. Uh, we've got a health service we know every winter is under massive pressure. It would be irresponsible of me as a UK taxpayer and citizen to say, no, I must have all this stuff because that's the only way the armed forces are going to be fit for purpose. Yes, I would love to have more. So the way we're getting around that problem at the moment is that we, um, we're in the process of drawing up uh, the national defence plan. This is the homeland defence of the UK itself. Now, stand fast to stuff with NATO. We've got that. But what we're looking at, specifically UK defence, what do we need to be doing that we used to do in the Cold War that we need to be doing today because we haven't done it for a while and we need to get better at? And that National Defence Plan, you can't figure me if I can't disclose the detail because it's all classified, but it's there, it's in gestation, it's getting better every day, it's being tested, it's being war-gamed. And what that's doing is looking at, OK, if we can't have the mass, what preparation planning can we do? If we're going to harden our defences... We may not be able to do it this year or indeed next year, but maybe if we had a 10-year campaigning approach, we could harden all the critical defences we need to. So it's really, again, comes back to this question of prioritisation. Go for the things that are the most important. Look at the things you can do now. Look at things you've got to do over the long term. Work with your allies and partners to, to the maximum extent possible. Um, and then, OK, we know there are some areas where we are, quotes at risk, um, and we have to make a political judgment, ultimately above my pay grade, a political judgment, about how much risk we're prepared to take on certain things without jeopardising what we call in the building the no regrets options. There are some things we have to do, we can't do them, so there are no regrets at the end of the day. Before coming to this recording studio earlier today, I looked up the YouGov polling information and the question they asked recently was, what are the key priorities for the British public? And the key priorities for the British public are the economy, 54%, 44% is health, 39% immigration and asylum, 27% environment, and 22% crime. Defense stands at 8%. I guess it actually raises a question, how do we explain to the nation, to the wider public, the importance of the investment in defense and our security, when we have the situation where only 8% of the general public actually think that this is one of the key priority areas for us to focus and invest in? Well, uh, first thing to say is that um, in one way you could turn the argument about 8% on its head and say uh, we must be doing a good job because we're not considered to be a priority of the public. They think we've already got it you know, sewn up. Maybe that's so. Way to get it. But this is not a beauty contest, right? I, I think defence isn't trying to be more popular than than health, and that would be absurd. We all know, uh, we all know how important you know the health service is, for example. Um, and I think people I speak to in defence are very conscious of the cost of living uh, pressure that the public are under. 
we've got to just be more efficient with what we've got, uh, I think. So if you think about it, we spend about a quarter of our money on personnel. Um, so one of the arguments that have been put forward is, like, well, if you reduce the numbers of personnel slightly, that will save you quite a bit of money and put that money back into people you have got to make sure their accommodation is brilliant, the terms and conditions of service are better, um, and the producti productivity is higher by giving them digital equipment they need to do their jobs properly. Um, there are some personnel you can't do without. So part of that, that quarter of the budget, you, you just have to have part of that. Um, and, you know, I, I have to mention that uh, we just had one particular nuclear submarine tour. Um, they were under the water for six months. Now, imagine being away from your family, your kids, um, or all your loved ones for six months on a duty. And what's amazing is when those people came back on the quayside, met by the first sea lord, um, there wasn't a kind of a rush to get away. They were still doing their duty. And I think that is just a mark of the of the professionalism that these people have got. And we want to look after these people, which that's is why... Rob, that's also a mark of overstretch, isn't it? If the sub, if an SSBN is no, away for six months. Not, that, not that, isn't that also a sign of the pressure on the undersea fleet? I recognise the absolute professionalism of the submariners, but we rather wouldn't have these people operating at that level of endurance and intensity, wouldn't, wouldn't we? Well, I, I'm, well, I'm relieved this isn't the Today programme, otherwise I'd, I'd be having to kind of now <laughs> deal with lots of interruptions. But um, what do we spend the other money on? So 36% of our money goes on equipment, arms, you know, uh, and uh, infrastructure costs, things like that. So there's not a lot we can do to reduce that, a little bit which can be shaved off. But if you're really going to look at where you save money, it's the 38% that we spend on... Um, defence enterprise, um, science, research and development, the inventory, civilian personnel, um, property, and that very large category, always in every pie chart, it's a big category called other, mm. isn't there? Which you'll go, what's in there? You know, <laughs> what's not on the slide? Um, so, so what's in there? A uh, whole bunch of stuff, actually, really. Far too dull uh, to go through uh, with things like, you know, um, mm. travel, training, uh, conflict, pool, funds. Now, what, what I think we're saying is to be more efficient, um, you've got to look at that area. You've got to look at that bit and say, we need to squeeze a bit more juice out of the system. Now, this is where lots of veterans then start howling and going, what the hell are you talking about? Because um, we're already doing a lot more with a lot less, and it's painful. And that's why I come back to this point about why we mentioned in the Defence Command paper, we didn't start with a strategy. What can we do with the private sector that um, means we don't have to spend lots of taxpayers' money on it? If the best... AI development is in the private sector, why on earth would defence try and replicate that and probably not do it as well? Much better to go to the specialists, bring them into the system, um, allow them to flourish and to show us how it can be done. So it's that approach to the costs that I think really, really matters. And I, I mention that because um, if we ever had a major threat to the United Kingdom, a major crisis, it is going to affect, as we've already seen, your energy costs. Secondly, your consumer goods are going to be affected. So what you currently buy is going to change if the United Kingdom is attacked or its interests are attacked or China does something ridiculous in the East Asian area. Banking is going to be affected. So suddenly your paycheck is going to change. Maybe your banking won't even work if there was a major cyber attack in the United Kingdom and if, if the UK MOD and uh, the um, the Government Communications Centre at Cheltenham wasn't working closely together, which it does really, really well. But if it hadn't been, and it wasn't integrated, then we, the, uh, the public, if you like, are going to suffer. So we might not think it's important. We might say it's a lesser priority right now. But I dare say also, if we had a terrible attack, including a terrorist attack in anywhere in the UK, the public would turn around and say, well, actually, defence and security is more important. But I say my, my line would be, 
it's not a beauty contest. We're not trying to win the popularity stakes. What we're trying to do is deliver what the public need, um, and, and that is our duty. That's our first duty of government, is to protect the nation and help it prosper. Uh, and I think that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve. Shashank, I guess before we finish the conversation today, we probably need to ask Rob what's next for Sonak and what's next when it comes to the new editions of the Defence Command paper. Wow. Yeah, OK. Well, very quickly, uh, we are already planning for the next integrated review mm. um, because I think one of the lessons learned from the Defence Command paper process was that it was really, really rapid. We were given five weeks, for example, to do a massive consultation of as many specialists uh, as we could find, including veterans and everyone else, to say, what do you think should be in this command paper? They came up with some really robust criticism, over half a million words, um, really great material. And we put that in, unalloyed, uh, unsanitized, to the ministers. Um, and uh, they found that really, really uncomfortable. I can tell you now that it was a, it was a bit of a shock, uh, some of the findings. So we're building towards this Integrated Review 2025, or, or whenever it might be. Um, that's just a head mark we put in our heads for the time being. Let's have a longer term look. Let's look over the horizon. Let's do a 30, 40 year look. Um, we've actually got one longer look, um, very much in my bailiwick, which is 100 years. What will the UK look like? What will its interest be 100 years from now? And what are the head marks that we're aiming towards as a nation that mm. we need to address? Now, not surprisingly, employment, um, how we work, uh, uh, demography, um, all matter um, a great deal. New technologies, we won't be able to predict what they can do, but we can have some idea of what we would like them to do and how they will enable and support our people, how they assist education, allow us to continue to be a technology leader. We know we're fourth in the world for new tech, so we want to stay there at the front. So these, these head marks, long, long, long-term ones, and then the ones that are sort of shorter term, the next sort of four or five years, give us some sense of you know where, where we're going. SONAC, uh, Secretary's Office and Net Assessment Challenge, is designed to sort of look at what's out there in the literature, talk to scholars, talk to experts, and then challenge them, and then challenge the government itself, challenge the um, Minister of Defence to say, well, what are you doing about it? Um, have you delivered on your, on your assurances in the Defence Command Paper yet, and in the refresh? Why haven't you? What's holding you up? Uh, what more needs to be done? Can we accelerate anything? What do we need to deprioritise? All these questions are what we deal with every day in, uh, in the office. I would just add a couple of things to that. One is, it's incredibly challenging doing strategy in a democratic context. You know, the time frame that you've just talked about, Rob, is going to see different governments of different stripes. And you're trying to craft policy, or craft um, defence policy at least, in an environment which we will see Labour defence secretaries, Conservative defence secretaries, they will have their own different points of emphasis, there will be points of convergence. I think it's been interesting to see uh, a degree of consensus take shape, coalesce across the political spectrum, not entirely, but to some degree, on some of the stuff we've talked about. Yeah. You know, there's been, of course, almighty debates around the Indo-Pacific tilt, but actually I, I don't see as much divergence and, 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 and disagreement and fracture as I think some people do across the spectrum on that. And I think the I think the other really interesting question is this is a, a, a moving target, right? You have refreshed this because of the dramatic events that took place within an 18-month period, the end of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. and we're in, we're in a period that feels very disordered, right? You know, mm -hmm. the, the Taiwan is being squeezed by air and sea. Um, there's a war in the Middle East that 
could easily spiral out of control in which the Royal Navy is involved in the Med. We're seeing US carrier strike groups being sent to the uh, CENTCOM region after years of presidents trying to get them out. Uh, and, and the war in Ukraine is, is not, it's not settled. It's an open thing. You know, Russia may not be able to achieve its goals, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we'll see a conclusive mm-hmm. end to this. And so um, it's very much a moving target. You'll, you'll have to revisit this. And it's worth being humble about just how much can change by the time you get to the next iteration of this. Well, absolutely. And, and I can tell you, as someone who's trained as an historian, um, I'm very conscious that everything is contingent and contextual. So, um, yes, it, headmarks are your aiming point as a nation, where, where we want to be, what our values are, what we hope to, to be. In 100 years from now, they'll be quite distinct, obviously. Not everything will survive. Um, but if we have no plan at all, if we were just ripped up the Defence Command paper refresh, if we ripped up the Integrated Review and just allowed ourselves to be the flotsam and jetsam on the ocean of world affairs, well then, woe be to us because we would end up um, losing strategic opportunities. We wouldn't exercise the leverage or advantage or position we would have. Uh, we will be pushed around, potentially even by our own allies. So I think it's really important to have a strong sense of what it is we're trying to achieve. Absolutely right, agree, we adapt uh, as we go. And I would also reinforce what you've said about regardless of who, what political complexion of party um, is in power, there are some things that we know are fundamental to our country, to our nation and our allies. And our nuclear deterrent, uh, every party that I know of um, that has any chance of being a government knows the importance of that insurance policy. Look at what happened to Ukraine, which unilaterally disarmed. And there is a stark, stark lesson about why the nuclear deterrent really, really matters. Defence through NATO. All the parties, I think, again, with perhaps only one exception, realise the importance of that uh, value, of staying together as partners. Re- you know, regardless of what political machinations there were over Brexit and about political um, disagreements over economic policies or the status of Northern Ireland. I mean, I think we all understand that we are geographically, you know, proximate to Europe uh, and we are... Uh, our volume of trade is massive with the United States and we're, we have to share the same values as Canada and with Australia and New Zealand. So it's only right that I think that we maintain that sort of sense of, of connection. And I think the final thing to say is about standing alongside Ukraine. I mean, I am impressed that unlike many other countries in Europe and indeed in the United States, where there's intense division politically about whether we should stand or not with Ukraine, What's distinct and remarkable about the UK is that we have said, regardless of the cost, we're going to stand with that country for a point of international principle, not just a national interest, a higher interest, which we identify with the Integrated Review Refresh. That is pretty impressive. And it's the envy of friends of mine in Europe who say, I wish we had the same degree of consensus that you've managed to achieve in the UK on it. I think it says something about the British public. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us for the very first episode of Defence Talk, Securing UK Advantage and discussing the refresh of the Defence Command paper and the implications for British defence. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. And thanks for having me as well, Victoria. It's been a great discussion. Shashank, you've been a stellar co-host and thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much to all our listeners for listening to this episode that is brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with ADS and sponsored by BAE Systems. To find out more about our new podcast and upcoming episodes, please visit www.geostrategy.org.uk or send an email to defence talks at geostrategy.org.uk. Until next time.